Welcome to Live at the Nip Bar. You're here with JB and David Cunningham. This week, JB, I'm going back to something we've heard you say a few times, which <laughs> is that all our immigrants are nail technicians. <laughs> now, the data guy went and started taking a look, and that's sort of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, hey, can we talk about a couple of things, though? Yesterday, today, we had migration stats come out, which do show a slight... It shows we're past that peak of 130,000 net migrants. So it's starting to come down a bit. So I thought we could talk about two things. Well, perhaps finish with who are the migrants, so the nail technician sort of story. But first, let's talk about the impact of migrants on New Zealand's economy, on inflation, on things like the home building and construction and rental sort of market sector. So pretty sort of broad start, but how about we start with worker availability? Because if we think back to the COVID period, you know, that was the number one problem for employers was getting staff, and that was a big driver of wage inflation. So all this migration, what's that done in that regard? Well, I think it's helped, right? You certainly don't walk past cafes these days desperately looking for baristas and Mm. staff, right? And kitchen Mm. staff. Uh, I mean, all that stuff's disappeared. And and look, at the time I said it's because New Zealand relies on a pretty transient sort of semi-tourism and international student market Mm. to fill a lot of those sort of lower skill, low wage, low value add jobs. So when you had no tourists, you know, young people on their working holiday, when you didn't have the international students, suddenly there was a crisis. Yeah, well, um, bear in mind that, you know, we've had a pretty big international student market, which, you know, I think is a bit of a rort anyway, and bring them over here teach them bad English, uh, charge them a lot of money and then send them on their way again. But the reason those schemes worked so well, and we know this now, and the same issues in Australia, is that we were selling residency visas off the back of it. I mean, it was just a cheap way of people and the likes of India getting uh, residency visas for example. But it did contribute to sort of plugging those gaps. Interestingly, I don't yeah. think that was a New Zealand-only phenomenon. Like I was in England in June, year before last, so that was just after New Zealanders could travel overseas again. And everywhere you went, it was shortage of workers. And like you were driving along the motorway, pulled into a you know service yeah. station, restaurants, all that sort of stuff. There, a lot of them were shut because they didn't have enough workers, or they were doing really reduced hours. So you know, I guess what UK had done is. You both had that reduction in travel, but that also just left the EU. So that influx of workers from Europe had stopped too. I mean, think about the number of Kiwis and Australians that didn't do their OE over COVID, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's sort of normalising. So we've sort of seen the pressure come off wages. I think in all the survey stuff you see... Yeah. The number one issue businesses face today is enough demand from customers to buy their product or service, not getting workers to fulfil the customer needs. So what does that mean then for things like wage inflation and ultimately inflation, which obviously feeds into interest rates? Ultimately, this comes down to squeeze businesses mm-hmm. and you squeeze inflation. So yeah. if businesses can't sell stuff, mm-hmm. they don't make money, they've got to lay people off. And that takes, you know, that's why the RBNZ is looking for an increase in the unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. The challenge in the New Zealand market, as we've talked about before, is it's very difficult to chop off an arm and a leg, mm. and businesses will bleed before they mm. get rid of employees because mm. they know how hard it is to get them back again later on. Mm. I think you said to me earlier today that, you know, businesses are just hanging on, knowing that there must be some light at the end of the tunnel. 
and you don't want to be without workers when that light emerges. So yeah. they're, they're sort of hanging on, clinging on, which is why unemployment perhaps hasn't risen as much as you'd expect, despite this massive migration influx. Yeah, look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it hanging. I think businesses doing okay, but, but yeah. you know, they're certainly going to be running lower levels of profitability. And I think you're sort of seeing that in some of the business results that are getting reported. Mm. And we're just going to see a continuation of that trend over the next year or two. Mm. Mm. Okay, so less pressure on wages because there are more people and employment's sort of rising a bit. That, the impact on inflation is presumably that wage inflation moderates and this has got... Yes. Disappears. Uh, yeah. yeah, like I mean, I think you're certainly not going to get wage inflation coming through from the private sector. Yeah. It's way too competitive, and the private sector will be struggling with how to sell stuff. Mm. You know, the guys that are going to be pushing through the inflation are the ones that have natural monopolies. You know, right. like I just. Like uh, the government itself? Well, the government <laughs> itself, you yeah. know, um, councils with rates, insurance mm. companies, mm. audit fees. I'd imagine lawyers and accountants aren't taking the pay cut anytime soon. Mm. Lawyers are a natural monopoly. Mm. It's interesting. I had a vehicle claim last week where someone ran into me on the way on holiday at the petrol station. Funnily enough, I got two kilometres. But anyway, when I spoke to the pedal beater, I was blown away by how expensive they said stuff was going to be. And they said, you know, a lot of it's the painting costs. And it's just this oligopoly where there are only one supplier and all the insurance companies are sort of in the same boat. But the beauty is you need insurance. So they just all put their prices up to maintain profits. And if they put in their prices up and, you know, the wages can go up. But if you're selling a product or service and you haven't got income, you can't afford to pay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so look, there's some parts of the economy that are still part, you know, we're still seeing cost increases coming through, but it's getting narrower and narrower. And certainly, you know, there's big parts of our economy now in terms of construction, uh, hospitality, retail, where, you know, they're really doing it tough now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so wage inflation more subdued because of migration and rising unemployment. Yeah. What about the impact on things like rentals? Rents? and home building and home buyers and that because we're still at the lowest turnover in the housing market for sort of since well global GFC and before that since 1990 and stats I saw yesterday was the time to sell has blown out over the last month or two as well which basically says low inventory and it's taken longer to sell so it's pretty depressed so so why isn't this migration driving this surge in property activity Oh, because uh, migrants were getting can't buy houses, right? So what, they've got to rent or stay in a hostel, is that the guts of it? Rent or stay in a hostel, you know, eight to a room in some cases. So, you know, my facetious comment about nail technicians really is talking to the quality of the immigration that's coming through. We've got a lot of low-skill immigration coming through from uh, India, Philippines, China. Mm. Whether it's a nail technician or it's a labourer on a building site, yeah. There'll be other skills coming in as well, but, you know, and a lot of this is temporary. So the Philippines' number one export is labour hmm. around yeah. the world. Around the world, yeah. And then the money gets repatriated back to the Philippines. It's a good earner for them. Hmm. And, uh, and, it, and the government's involved in it, right? The Filipino government's involved in that whole system. Hmm. But it's only for temporary workers. They're coming well, in here. Yeah, not necessarily, though. I mean, I had a lot of my, my previous role at a bank, had a lot of Filipinos who had come for the Christchurch rebuild. And stayed. Um, they'd started out in hostel, sent money home, they'd paid for their immigration visa, <laughs> which you pay for quite a bit for. I think yeah. they were spending $30,000 getting a visa to come to New Zealand. 
But then they gradually integrated into the community, brought their family over, bought houses in those Filipino communities and places like Christchurch and parts of Auckland are incredibly strong. And, and in fact, you know, you'd argue the Filipino community is supporting the healthcare sector survive. Oh, hugely. So, you know, they're not necessarily... Un- yeah, but I, th- uh, I get I that journey... villages uh, couldn't survive. Yeah, the- but I get certainly get that journey of often it does start with a hostel and then move sort of forward. Interesting to look at the stats. So the main places that new New Zealanders as migrants come from are India, the Philippines and China and returning New Zealanders. So they're yeah. all about equal, interestingly. So India, Philippines, China and New Zealanders coming home. You've got to go down a long way down the list before you come to anywhere near that, you know, place like South Africa, Fiji, Australia and the UK. Australia, interestingly, is remarkably low. I think it's a <laughs> across the Tasman, you know, people leaving rather than coming bears. back. One way, one way, sort of bit. So it's sort of interesting. I also took a look at, when, you know, if you want to come to New Zealand, what are the school shortages the government sort of has on the immigration list? And, and it's the stuff you'd expect, like construction, engineers, health, yeah, but say take construction, mm. right? So having developed property, mm. the vast majority of the workers on your building sites are unqualified. Right, so it's lower skilled and therefore they're not going to be buying a house. Hammerheads. Yeah, hammerheads, yeah. And, and, you know, when I look through the list of what people actually, what people went into, you know, there's a bunch of people that came in. I mean, it's 40,000 in total, but I guess your point was it's a variety from the highly skilled, like, managers and construction professionals, engineering what, what professionals. What I'd like to see is what hourly rate is everyone coming into the country on. Yeah, okay. They'll give you a pretty clear indication of how skilled they are. Yeah, okay. So, feeding the rental market more so than the home buying market. Yeah, well, and, and, and I guess term, right? I guess we've seen that rents are up. You know, yeah. it's one of the core components of inflation that's still rising. Isn't but, it? but remember the rental market. So there's basically that market. Plus, you've got international students coming back, and you've got lots of temporary visitors that mm. do sort of fill up houses and stuff. You know, things like Airbnb and mm. stuff have completely transformed the way mm. that the housing market works now. Mm. So. We have got this upward pressure on rents. You know, we won't build fast enough uh, and we'll go through the classic boom-bust cycle because builders are in no shape to meet increasing demand. Their balance sheets have been destroyed. In the right, so the workers are arriving, but actually they haven't got the financial resource to start the project. Uh, yeah. Does, well, yeah. Does that mean we'll have a glut of construction no, and trade workers? No, I've been asked about this recently, actually, just today. My view on this, and it's not supported by data, just a bit like my nail technicians, but um, it's um, look, my, my view on this from what I'm seeing is, you know, there's still a lot of infrastructure projects out there. Mm, true. And I know from friends that are in, that recruit from overseas that uh, a big part of the recruitment that I've been doing is for infrastructure projects right. because they just haven't had the labour. You know, so big roading projects, particularly Gisborne, after mm. the cyclones and stuff, mm. there's just been so much roading work, mm. bridge repairs, uh, and then you just go to the big infrastructure projects the government's been mm. throwing all around the country. Mm. That's been sucking up resource. Yeah. And Rail tunnels that just go on and on, con- convention centres that just go on and on, on, and on. possibly a new Auckland stadium. That <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, so look, I think there's certainly plenty of big infrastructure projects that, that have sort of contributed to that. It's certainly not happening in the residential sector. Mm. Okay, so building consents have been dropping. From yeah. your, we interact a lot with developers at that small end of the market. Are they getting interested again because they were basically out of the market there were you know prices were falling construction costs were rising 
if I could get out of the last project without losing money, it was a great outcome. But presumably that means they've been sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. Are they coming back or no. were, they, were they sitting? No. Okay. Why no. not? I've said plenty of times before that I think the last cycle was partly driven by speculative property developers, people that hadn't developed before rushing in to do small terrace townhouse projects. The number of people that went, oh, I can make money out of development, I should do a townhouse development on this property I've got or maybe I should buy a property and do it. Tons of people rushing in. They didn't know what they were doing. They don't know how to manage a project. Costs blow out. They lose money. They don't do it again. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people that got burnt and won't be able so to go back one-time developers that will never touch it again. Then you've got, and I guess that discourages anyone that they're talking to that goes, don't go near with us a large yeah. pole. The same people that encouraged them to do it two or three years <laughs> yeah, ago, of course. Yeah. But yeah. And then, then you've got a bunch of people that are sitting on project sites that they just can't develop at a profit. So they're just sitting there gradually. So what needs to happen there? Do the house prices need to rise for it to become profitable or construction costs yeah. fall? Or no, no, house prices house would prices need to rise. rise. So, so it's not going to happen anytime soon. It's no, interesting, but... eh? So what we're saying is we'll have a shortage of housing unless house prices rise, which I suppose is the natural set of things, supply yeah. and demand. When demand exceeds supply, prices go up. But, and based, it becomes profitable. So most, most developers would be saying at the moment, based on today's land prices and construction costs, they cannot build profitably. So and who's these 40,000, 50,000 consents a year? And is that Auckland or New Zealand? But whatever, it's a big number. It's dropped, but it's still a big number. It's who, dropping. Who, who are the buyers then? Is that... Well, like at the moment, I mean, yeah, the predominantly these days people are building terrace townhouses. Right. Right, because that's the only price point that works mm-hmm. you know obviously it's a lower price point so it's more entry level mm-hmm. so the market for that is either first home buyers mm-hmm. including immigrant buyers mm-hmm. uh, and property investors that get oh, yeah. obviously dispensation for new builds yeah oh got it yeah yeah, yeah. so the tax sort of rules are, are supporting that what about Kangawara? they're a big buyer aren't they too? well they were um so Kangawara was a big player up until probably middle of last year mm. but they've largely stepped back mm. quite significantly from market and of course we've had a change in government mm. so mm. I'm not sure that we're going to see them rushing back in in a big way for mm. a while. Mm. Okay so shortage emerging rents because these immigrants aren't buyers so rents will continue to be upward pressure on migration. That said rents have consistently gradually risen over time you know they never rise eight percent in a year but they're just every year it's three or four percent when you look back over the last 20 or 30 years. It needs housing prices to rise before home building sort of starts to step, and that's probably six, 12 months away. And lower interest rates will presumably help with home building projects stacking up. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see you know, miraculous lift in house prices, to mm. be honest. I, I mean, my view is that you're going to have as many sellers coming mm. into the market as buyers, mm. and I think it will keep mm. house prices reasonably subdued at high interest rates. I, yeah. I think the catalyst for the next surge in house prices is much lower interest rates mm. and a stronger economy. And those things just aren't going to happen. Mm. I mean, interest rates might come down quite quickly, as we've discussed, mm. but certainly not as far as they've been. But uh, that's probably, you know, back end of this year, next year, 
I don't think you're going to see a strong economic recovery in New Zealand for at least three to four years. Mm. It's sort of interesting, eh? Because, I mean, I guess the number of houses available doesn't change whether you're buying off someone else or renting off someone else. It's actually construction that changes the supply. Mm. The demand is more people arriving. So, you know, logically it flows into higher rents and ultimately higher prices. But if you can't afford to borrow because of the interest rate being high, then nothing much is going to happen there. So I suppose... Interest rates is the key. I think so. Yeah. So that's interesting because most economists, you know, we had some economists sort of a six months ago getting up to, you know, 10 plus percent house price rises. I'm way more pessimistic than that. You know, my gut feel is below 5%, but certainly, you know, in that 5 and a bit percent range to 10% range perhaps. I mean, that would be a trigger for construction to start to pick up, wouldn't it? Well, if their balance sheets can make it work, yeah, right? Yeah. So firstly, they've got to have buyers, yeah. and secondly, they've got to have the balance sheets to be able to develop. So when you say the buyers, is that buyers off plan? Well, yes. I think, you know, traditionally the development market, we're not talking single house builds here, we're talking, mm. you know, terraced housing projects, maybe low-level apartments. Mm. Traditionally, that market does need a level of pre-sales, it mm. does need people buying off plan. Property investors historically have probably been the biggest mm. mechanism for mm. selling off plan. Mm. Well, that's where some of these DTI things could be at risk. Though, isn't there an exemption in the DTI, the new debt-to-income restrictions and LBR for restrictions new for new builds? So that's not put at risk, I think. So you yeah. sort of keep coming back to interest rates, really. The demand is going to be there, but only when interest rates fall. And I suppose the other point is, when interest rates start to fall, let's say the home loan rate dropped, I don't know, 1% in the next year, for most customers, that doesn't give them any relief, does it? Because they've only just, you know, they've been rolling over, you know, five, six, maybe some at seven, but it actually doesn't start to that monetary policy easing actually has a lagged impact because some people, even though the monetary policy is easing maybe later this year, will still be having a higher interest rate than they were coming off. Yeah. So it's sort of, a, it's just this long lead and lag. And I guess the point is the Reserve Bank's got to manage for that really long lead and lag. So the lag of higher interest rates coming through continues and the lag of when they start to cut, it takes ages to flow through. Yeah, and... They'll be acutely aware of that, of course. I mean, economists sort of, you know, they're not stupid, right? They're very, very astute. But also, fundamentally, we've got a construction sector that doesn't have strong balance sheets. Yeah. And so it's really susceptible to the economic environment, both in terms of interest rates, but also economic activity. Mm. And so, you know, when the times are good, it's a Mm. sector that kind of booms. Yeah. And when times are bad, it's a sector yeah. that goes through a massive crunch. Yeah. Hey, one changing subject just slightly. One reflection I had this week was that as interest rates start to fall, I don't think we're going to see that transmit through to lower mortgage rates at anywhere near the same pace. And, you know, I think in ASB Bank's financial result that came out yesterday, the interest margin pre-COVID was around 2.1, 2.2, and it dropped to a low of 2%. That's the difference between what they borrow and lend money at on average. It bounced up to 2.5%, but over the last year, it's dropped from like 2.5, 2.4, 2.3, 2.2, 2.1 in the last three months, based yeah. on my calculations. So it's back to where arguably it should have been, but boy, they're going to be protecting. As interest rates fall, it will be like, what can we do to get that margin back up? Because I think for the first time in history that I've seen is uh, ASB's balance sheet for home lending fell first time in 30 or 40 years. 
Yeah, because when it was trying to protect margin by holding its rates up, mm. the market was too competitive and it lost mm. market share. Mm. So, look, it, I mean, it does sort of show that competition is doing its job at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which probably goes against this uh, review of bank competition. <laughs> the interesting thing is, look, what's cost them and what's costing banks generally is that there has been this acceleration into higher yielding deposit products. Yeah, so I'm moving out of it savings account earning 3% to a TD earning 6%. Yeah. Yeah. And quite rightly, it's interesting though in New Zealand, the biggest part of the deposit market is turned deposits. In Australia, it's savings accounts. Guess why the difference? Why? Because their savings accounts actually pay... Pay a decent rate of interest. So savings accounts are paying above OCR or above their cash rate in Australia. In New Zealand, savings accounts are paying on average 2.5% below the cash rate. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, but that's exactly the same dynamic with housing, right? Where we've talked about in most places in the world, the floating housing rate's the cheapest rate. Yeah. But in New Zealand, it's the fixed rates. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, but on the other side. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of interesting, right? That, yeah, that, it's, it's and, 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 what, and what's driven it is that New Zealand banks have milked their floating rate products for margin and for profitability, which means that they've, they've been more competitive with their fixed rate products, and that's where they've been driving competition. Yeah. So effectively, if you play the game and are always looking for the best rate on home lending or TD or savings, so you'll go... be a fixed rate. Yeah, 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 and for those to whom they don't manage it closely or inertia rules or whatever it is, then, um, you know, they pay the price. Yeah, interesting, eh? Hey, we'd better wrap it up there. Any closing sort of thoughts on this discussion? Yeah, you're backing away from your nail technician sort of argument? <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm not. Well, I mean, look, I was facetious with that, but, yeah. but look, my point's the same. It's that New Zealand's low got wage. low quality immigration. Mm. And look, it was required for a period there because there's no question at all that we had an issue. Mm. But, you know, my thing is, look, I'd love to see New Zealand actually have a much better long-term plan. Mm. We just seem to knee-jerk react to the next thing right in front of our nose and... I don't know. Have we actually got a plan for this country? Well, you know, maybe we're hoping that the new government might bring a stronger plan. Let's see. Hopefully. Hopefully it doesn't rely on tourists and and international students. Okay, well, let's wrap it up there. Another interesting topic. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have any questions or things you'd like us to talk about in the future, get in touch with us at david at squirrel.co.nz or john at squirrel.co.nz. And please do share this uh, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not financial advice or a recommendation of any financial product. Any commentary provided are personal views and are not necessarily representative of the opinions of Squirrel. As always, we recommend seeking professional investment or mortgage advice before taking any action.